0: I think maybe we all need to watch that three or four times. Okay? Because you have baggage that your traditions have given you. Now I want to be less politically correct. You've been taught some things that are not correct. So now I'm going to be polite. You have some baggage from your traditions. You can't just hear something once and unload that baggage. You're going to have to retrain your brain that the story of the Bible is not we're all going to fly away some glad morning when this life is over and all go dwell together in heaven for eternity with Jesus. Jesus is not going to be far away in eternity forever. The Bible clearly teaches he's coming to earth to reign. Does that make sense? And the Bible also clearly teaches you're going to get a resurrection and you're coming back with him to reign. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain are going to get our resurrection, the earth's going to get a resurrection, and the reunification will fully happen in that moment. So now that's, God, we got to retrain ourselves, okay? So uh, we'll make the link available. Watch that several times this week. That'll be good homework for everyone. Uh, The podcast came out a little bit late last week because I was incredibly, insanely busy, and uh, I know it, I think it dropped Friday or Saturday. If you haven't heard the podcast from last week, it deals with that. And someone asked a great question from John chapter 14. My father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Pastor, what about that? I took an hour to talk about that on the podcast, okay? So be sure you listen to that as well. Now let's get to this morning because we're moving away from, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this morning we're moving to the section in the Apostles' Creed that I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, which is His Son, so the previous paragraph, God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And every one of these words are critical. And uh, uh, I'll deal with a little bit more of of his only son because the whole section's on Jesus now. We're going to talk about Mary and the virgin birth and the crucifixion and Pontius Pilate and all kinds of things coming in the next few weeks. But let's deal with first things first. Uh, We were getting to know some of our new members Friday night at our house. Uh, we had about 30 people, over 25 or 30 people over, and uh, the best way to get to know people is pool party. So we had a pool party, and burgers and dogs and homemade ice cream, and we had a great time together playing with the little ones in the pool and splashing about and talking to moms and dads. and over the laughter and over the splashing, uh, I heard T.G. Vincent tell her son, "Go ahead, ask him." We were all in the pool. And so he's clinging to a pool noodle. The water's over his head, and he's not that great of a swimmer. We had saved him just a few minutes earlier. He's clinging to a pool noodle, and uh, he kicks over to where I'm at in the pool, and he says, "Okay, Pastor, I have a question." And he said, "Here's." I said, "Well, fire away, son. Go ahead. What's your question? You know?" And uh, I I know I'm going to get a childlike, simple question, and I'm going to humor him with a childlike. Uh, you know, condescending answer, no doubt. And here's this question, Pastor: When God creates the new earth, will it have one continent or seven? <laughs> I'm expecting that did Adam have a belly button? And instead, I got a question based on the ancient. Philosophy, the concept of Pangea. If you've never studied Pangea, you can Google that this afternoon. It's the idea that the world was originally created with one landmass. Now before you dismiss that idea, what other explanation do you have for the shape of the continents? Maybe you should go home this afternoon and pull up Google Maps and study just for a few minutes and quickly realize... That seven continents look like seven giant puzzle pieces that all interlock with one another when shoved back together. Okay? So clearly at some point they were connected because they all fit together just like puzzle pieces and there has to be some explanation for that. Now many people think that Genesis chapter 10 is making a reference to this. It may be, or it may be a reference to uh, Tower of Babel dividing of the nations. But in in chapter 10 of Genesis, it says this. Two sons were born to Eber, one named Peleg, because in his time was the earth divided. And a lot of ancient scholars say this is a reference to Pangea. This is a reference to God pulling the continents apart at some ancient point in human history. Now, uh, again, it's not prudent to interpret apocalyptic sayings like the book of Revelation in a literal way. Apocalypse is not a literal type of writing. It's a symbolic type of writing and that's probably a discussion for another time. But I say that so when you get to Revelation be very careful about very literal interpretations in the book of Revelation which is apocalyptic type writing. But some people believe that Pangea might actually be The model for the new heaven and the new earth. So I give you Revelation 21 very quickly. Verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Now when I read that, I read something completely way out. No sea means no beach. And for some of us, that's not heaven. Okay? So... What I'm saying is, uh, I got a question that came in, and I want to say this to you. All of that's just to set up to say to you, never be shocked by a simple question, air quotes, simple question from a child. I have learned in almost 30 years of pastoring that simple questions, especially simple questions from children and teenagers are some of the most difficult questions you'll ever try to answer. And after 30 years or 40 years or 50 years of studying the Bible, uh, it's okay to say what I said in the swimming pool the other night. I looked at Mr. Vincent and I said, sir, I don't know the answer to your question. Now, all discipleship leaders, listen right here. This is your section. To the discipleship leaders, I want to say to you, you're going to be confronted by feelings of inferiority along the way as you try to lead other people. It's not, it's not if it's going to happen. It's just when it's going to happen. Because everyone who tries to lead, lead others deals and struggles with some inferiority, thinking to yourself, I don't have it together enough to lead these other people, and I don't know all the answers to everything in the Bible, and I don't know if there's one continent or seven in the new heaven and the new earth, and I don't know how to explain there's not going to be an ocean. And I don't. Here's the good news for you. You are not the Almighty, and no one expects you to be. No one expects you to be. So don't put unreasonable expectations upon yourselves. A good leader is someone who dedicates themselves to following Christ and learning and studying and being transformed by the Holy Spirit and being open to change and open to growth and open to learning. Let me say it in a more concise way to you. Jesus' disciples were learning as they were leading. Now I want to remind you, Jesus thinks they're ready to launch. He thinks they're ready to lead. And I would not second-guess Jesus Christ on that. He thinks they're ready to lead. So he says, now it's time I'm going to be crucified at Passover. He thinks they're ready to lead. They don't think they're ready to lead. A matter of fact, one of them is going to deny him tonight. Matter of fact, in the garden, they're all going to run away tonight. John will circle back pretty quickly, but the other 11 will not be found for some time still. One of them will commit suicide tonight. I mean, it's going to decline very quickly after the Upper Room Discourse and the Garden of Gethsemane arrest. And Jesus tried to prep them for that. He says, you're ready to lead. You're mature enough to lead. It doesn't mean they knew the answer to every question. It doesn't mean they had gotten their act fully together, yet... As leaders themselves. What it meant was they were learning as they were leading and I want to say to every member of Cornerstone do that. If you say one day I'm gonna lead when I get it all figured out we'll be sitting here 20 years from now and you still won't be leading because I've been studying the Bible my entire life and I have not figured it all out. I'm learning as I lead, okay? And so don't be intimidated by that. And when those feelings of inferiority rise up, come and talk to another leader about it. Probably not your disciples. Probably another leader about it. Come and find Jeremy or or, or me or Susan or, or, or Eric or another leader somewhere that's one of your peers and just say, I'm struggling with some areas, I'm getting some questions, and sometimes I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. And let us coach you a little bit because we're being transparent now. Maybe in a way churches don't do much. None of us know all the answers. All of us have feelings of inferiority. All of us get in circumstances where are like, okay, I'm over my head now. I'm not sure how to sort this out. So what do you do? You do what Solomon said to do. Get some wise counsel and just work your way through it and learn as you lead. People have asked me all, it's not, it's not uncommon for people to come to me and say, Pastor, i got a simple question for you. I brace myself. Where is my dead loved one? Where is heaven? Simple question, Pastor. Explain the Trinity. Simple question. I just want to say to you that questions that seem simple on face value, many times, maybe most of the time, are not simple questions at all. They are incredibly difficult to answer. Do not be intimidated by that. So, now it leads me to say this, if a little kid can ask a profound question, I want you to know that Jesus can ask some doozies. He, He can ask some questions to you that cut right through everything, they cut through all the nonsense, he gets right to the heart of the matter, and he can ask questions that make you pause for a moment and rethink everything. And such is my text this morning, I want to talk to you about one of the questions Jesus asked. But before we do that, let me give you a brief overview of who Jesus is, since it's a new section, and I'll circle back to Jesus' question in just a few minutes. So let's talk about the historic Jesus for just a moment. Jesus of Nazareth is a historic figure. This is undeniable. He was born in Bethlehem. Somewhere around 4 B.C. Those who invented our modern calendar got it almost right. About 4 B.C. And listen, there's a year we could go probably either way. This is a much debated thing. But he was born on or around 4 B.C. In Bethlehem. We know that fact. Recorded in the census. We know then they made their flight, and I don't mean American Airlines, they made their exodus, ran for their lives to Egypt, and he was there in Egypt for a little while. But we know then the family moved back to the family village of Nazareth, which is in Galilee, just southwest of the Sea of Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. The province is called Galilee. Jesus basically grew up most of his life Sometime from boyhood to manhood when he started his ministry. All those years, he lived basically in obscurity in a small nowheresville town village called Nazareth in Galilee. His mother was related to the priestly families of Israel. Jesus had a cousin, you should know this from the New Testament, named John. John is from one of these priestly families, Jesus' cousin... And John's father was a priest. His name is uh, prominent in the New Testament, Zacharias. He's named after one of the old prophets. And Zacharias was a priest in the temple. This is John's dad. It's Jesus' uncle. And in the normal course of events, John would have been a priest like his father. But these were not normal times. And this family, both Jesus and Elizabeth and Zacharias and John, their families would not follow a normal path In the early 20s A.D., things began to move very quickly. And instead of becoming a priest, John, Jesus' cousin, became the one you know as the baptizer. John the Baptist. Mary's husband, Joseph, was from the lineage of King David. This seems like a big deal, doesn't it? Joseph is from the lineage of King David. But what's striking in the New Testament is no one seems to care about the old monarchy anymore. No one seems to care about the old lineage of the kings anymore. If you're of David's lineage, you get no special treatment in this modern world of 4 B.C., uh, 20 A.D. You get no special treatment in the first century for being David's lineage because times had changed. Rome was in charge now, not David's people. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and like Jewish boys did, he learned to read and he learned to study the Jewish scriptures, Israel's ancient scriptures, what you would call the Old Testament, plus some other writings that are available that are not in your Old Testament. Jesus knew the ancient Hebrew scriptures inside and out. It's very fair to say that Jesus had memorized huge portions of, ...of the Scripture. Some children memorize the entire books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The Psalms. Some of the prophets. It's fair to say Jesus had a vast knowledge... ...about what the Old Testament Scriptures taught. And what we realize very quickly in the New Testament gospel accounts of the life of Jesus... ...is that he's taking those Old Testament Scriptures and working up his sermons off of them... There is no New Testament. He's working up his messages off of those Old Testament scriptures. He's making fresh applications in his modern day of the ancient scriptures of Israel. We know that he learned the trade of Joseph. And he became a builder. We know that Joseph, a parent, it's a parent, let me say it that way. It's a parent that Joseph died somewhere in the... Childhood, teenage years of Jesus Christ, because Jesus already knows the trade of Joseph. Joseph disappears after the 12-year-old Jesus incident in the temple that I talked about in the podcast. And now, going forward, you'll not hear from Joseph anymore. He's gone from the scene. He is dead, and, and he has passed on. And now Jesus is a builder after the trade of Joseph, running the family business in Nazareth. He went from living a completely obscure life in Galilee and was suddenly thrust into the public spotlight in the late 20s of the first century A.D., we call it now. So somewhere in the 20s, late 20s, Jesus now is suddenly from nowheresville to in the spotlight of the ancient Near East. Uh, The Scriptures tell us, They supposed he was about 30 years old. And at about 30 years old, he started ministering in a very open and public way. Almost everything you know about Jesus Christ are things that happened in a very short, jam-packed three years of his life. So almost everything you know about Jesus, we know the birth of Christ was on this wise. And you turn the page and suddenly he's a grown man. That's it. I mean, it just zooms to the last three years where the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just focus in really on what happened in those last three years of his earthly life. In those three years, he made such a stir that he was eventually arrested by the authorities. He was put through brutal and unjust trials. And he was killed by public execution on the cross. That we know. You say, do we really know? Trust me, we know more about Jesus than any other figure in public history. More songs have been written, more books have been written, more studies have been done, more analysis is available, more copies of the ancient scriptures exist than any other ancient writing. We know more about Jesus than any other figure From ancient history. And no credible person can say that Jesus was not a real figure. Who was crucified at Passover in Jerusalem. Either on A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. But unlike all other historical figures. Here's something very unique about Jesus. Millions and millions of people call Jesus of Nazareth Lord. This is what's different. Millions of people call him Lord. Those who follow Jesus then and now believe that he rose again three days after his death on the cross. And we believe that Jesus is not only very much alive, we believe that Jesus is in charge. Now here's another one that's hard to wrestle with and we'll talk more about it. One of the big questions you want to ask yourself as you're reading the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ, you want to ask yourself this question, what did Jesus think he was doing? What did Jesus think he was doing? Not what do we think he was doing or what did my Sunday school teacher or the commentators, when Jesus did whatever he did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what was he thinking? And I would invite you to try to get into his head... It's complicated in there, but I would invite you to get inside there and wrestle with this question. What did Jesus think he was doing when he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and healed the man with the withered arm? What did he think he was doing in that moment? When Jesus went down to the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath and the man who had lain there for like 30 years and had nobody to help him and Jesus says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath when Jesus did that What was Jesus thinking? What what did he think he was doing in that moment when Jesus whipped the commercialism right out of the Father's house? What did Jesus think he was doing as he kicked over the money changers' tables and drove those commercialists right out of the temple? Here's one you really should wrestle with. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people threw down palm branches and their coats in the street. And they cried, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. What did Jesus think he was doing in that moment? And while you wrestle with that question, one thing that's very clear when you study the life of Jesus is that Jesus did things... ...that people didn't think you were allowed to do. Is that fair? He definitely is doing things... ...in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... ...that all the rest of the people... ...don't think you're allowed to do. And so they're confronting Jesus and saying... ...why, my question... ...why are you doing what you're doing? What are you thinking? And Jesus explained his actions by saying... He had the right to do the things he was doing. Jesus seemed to think that he was in charge. He just showed up from nowheresville and suddenly he seems to think he's in charge. Now after they walked with him for some time, his followers eventually came convinced of the same notion and his followers began to think, that he's in charge. Jesus is behaving as if he has the right to take over and do things completely differently than they've ever been done before. He seems to think that he's here to make the world a different place. His followers were so convinced that Jesus was the king they had always been waiting for. That they were willing to follow him and they believed he was in charge. And then after a big confrontation between the Jews and the Romans and Jesus. The Jews and the Romans now are collaborating in the death of Jesus. Well surely his crucifixion did something to the disciples that was devastating. And Jesus tried to warn them. I podcasted this this week. The upper room discourse runs. John thirteen, John fourteen, John fifteen, John sixteen, and John seventeen. There are no chapter breaks in Jesus' conversation. When he's with them in the upper room, he doesn't say, and now chapter fourteen. He's just talking. It's one long conversation that runs five chapters. Seventeen is a prayer, where he he says, Let's pray, and then they go to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Five chapters that discourse runs. And John chronicled every bit of it he could remember and the Holy Spirit could inspire in him. And the whole conversation is about Jesus telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave in bodily form. Do not let this devastate you. Do not let this throw you off. Do not let this deter you. I will be with you. I will be in you. I will send the Comforter to you. But sure enough, as it would you and I, they didn't understand all of that. And surely the crucifixion plunged Jesus' followers into three days of depression and absolute despair. Truly. And many thought in those three days, this will be the end of the Jesus movement. Why? Because Jesus has been crucified and he's buried over yonder in the tomb. And the Jesus movement has just come to a screeching halt. So... Maybe he wasn't in charge after all. But then, on Sunday morning, you know how the story ends, right? I'm not spoiling this for anybody. But then, three days later, on Sunday morning, the followers of Jesus were confronted with a resurrected king. His followers overcame their grief very quickly the followers of Jesus overcame their depression almost instantly. Peter struggled the most because he had messed up the most a few days ago. But he gets reclaimed here shortly, too, in just some uh, ensuing hours. And after they're confronted with the risen King Jesus, his followers have shed their grief and shed their tears and shed their anxiety. And now their confession is, he's really... In charge now. Now we thought he was in charge before they killed him. We thought maybe he wasn't in charge when they killed him. But now that he's back from the dead, we're certain he's in charge now. Well, 2,000 years later, we're looking at different, from a different perspective now. And 2,000 years later, we can say there is indisputable proof that Jesus is in charge, and we know that because with, without reservation I can say he has changed the world. I would invite anyone to uh, go visit Paris, if you're looking for a reason to go, I'll give you permission, uh, go and visit Paris, and when you get to Paris, Jared's, you want to go to the Louvre, the most famous museum probably in the world, and then you want to you get your ticket. You know, and you'll you'll get maybe some headphones that give you a self-guided tour or whatever. But you're going to go up. It's just wing and wing and wing and wing and floor, 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 floor. And you can be lost in there for a week, okay? Truly. You can skip all of that other fluffy nonsense, though, and go to the wing the Mona Lisa's in. And when you get to the wing the Mona Lisa's in, I would dare you, dare double dog dare you, to look at every painting on the wing that the Mona Lisa's in. And just look at every painting and start counting how many paintings have something to do with Jesus or the Bible. Almost every painting in the wing has to do with something biblical. Jesus has forever changed the world of art is what I tell myself every time I walk in there. I just look around the room and said, Jesus is on every wall here. Most famous museum in the world. Over yonder hangs the Mona Lisa When you get over there, she's about this big. You can hardly even find her. But over here, it's just Jesus, 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 John the Baptist, the angels, David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah. The wedding feast at Cana is the biggest painting in the room. It'd take up that whole wall. The wedding feast at Cana. It's just Bible, Bible, Jesus, Jesus everywhere. And I want to say to you, Jesus has forever changed the world. He's made it a different place. He has changed art. He has changed music, he has changed the culture of societies, he has changed philosophy, he has changed government, he has changed everything we know about human rights, he's changed everything we know about religion, he's changed education, and I could just keep going, he's changed everything. God was launching his big project to transform the world and transform humanity, to reunite, as the video showed a minute ago, to reunite heaven and earth. To restore the kingdom of God. Same words, to restore the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was the key to that transformation. Jesus is not just a religious figure. This is very important in the sermon. Please listen now. Jesus is not just a religious figure. Jesus is a political figure also. He's not just my Savior. He's my Lord. That's another word for king. He's not just my Savior. He's my Lord, my King. Here's what the Creed says. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, my Lord. He's not just my Savior. He's my Lord. Now, many believe when studying creeds and confessions and studying the first century church... 2nd century church, 3rd century church, many believe that the first, the earliest Christian confession was only two words, Kyrios Jesus, Jesus is Lord. It's three words in English, sorry, two words in the ancient language. Many believe the first confession of the church was only these words. As they threw you into the Colosseum and said, bend the knee to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, the Christians stood firm and said, no, Kyrios Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Say, Caesar is King. Jesus is King. No, bend the knee to the gods of this world. No, we have no God, no King, but Jesus. And they believe maybe the earliest Christian confession was simply that statement right there. And if that's the only creed or confession you knew in a rudimentary form, that would be enough. Jesus is Lord. Because at the center of the Christian faith is not an idea or not a concept or not a theory. At the center of Christianity is the name of a person. Jesus Christ. And our faith centers around a relationship with, a personal attachment to, a person, who is named Jesus Christ. An attachment to Jesus is a very personal matter. It's something you have to decide for yourself. You, you cannot attach your children to Jesus, and you cannot attach your parents to Jesus. You can only attach yourself to Jesus. Make a personal decision for Jesus. And it's a very personal matter, but it is not, however, a private matter. A lot of people want to keep their faith as a very private, concealed thing. That's not what the Bible says. It's personal, but not private. As a matter of fact, Paul reminded the believers at Philippi that everyone, all the powerful people, all the influential people, all the authorities, all the nobodies, everybody in between, all kinds of people, every people will publicly bend their knee, bow their knee to Jesus Christ, and they will confess the earliest Christian creed, Jesus is Lord. Let me read it for you. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, if you want to reference this, verse 9. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place. He's saying this in worship form, in music form just a moment ago. God has exalted him to the highest place, Gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is, say it out loud. That's what everybody's going to say eventually. Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, well, that's a very private thing. Well, it's not going to be private very long. When God makes everyone bow their knee and publicly confess Jesus is Lord. And if I were you I'd just get in the habit right now being public about it. Yes it's a personal choice but it's not a private matter. It's a very public thing to confess Jesus is Lord. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The Old Testament calls Yahweh Lord. So if you uh, look at the word Lord as found in your Old Testament and you uh, uh, search on that word, you'll find the word behind the word in the Hebrews, Yahweh. The Old Testament calls Yahweh Lord. The New Testament calls Jesus Lord. Do you understand what's happening in your New and Old Testaments as they come together in one book? To confess that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that Jesus shares the identity of the Old Testament Yahweh. Jesus is Israel's God. Jesus is Israel's king that she's looked for. But here's what happens in the New Testament. All of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ are now Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise and adopted into the whole situation so that you are the new Israel. So Paul goes on a few rampages, Galatians being one of them, and as he goes on a a tirade in Galatians, his whole tirade is against the Jews thinking they're special. He said, that time has passed. He said, now everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is Israel. Israel is not somebody who's circumcised. That's old news. Now, Israel is anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ. You're the new Israel. You say, well, the Jews inherit the land. You're the new Jews. You inherit the kingdom of God. You inherit the kingdom of of, of heaven. This is where it's all going. To confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus has assumed the same identity as the Old Testament God of the Scriptures. And the first followers of Jesus were eager, eager to crown Jesus as King of Israel. Now, certainly you've got this from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The disciples are saying to Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem and get the throne. Let's go go crown you king. Let's go take control. You're in control. Go go down to Jerusalem and take control of this mess and clean this mess up. You are the Messiah of the Old Testament. You're the one who's going to set it all right. You are God's king. Now, that's what the disciples thought. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I think we'll find some common ground here. Modern Christians think the disciples were confused because maybe they didn't understand that Jesus had to come and save us first. And from our perspective, modern Christians look back at the disciples and we see the disciples wanting a king but instead getting a savior. That's our modern perspective. Silly guys and gals. That silly Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter and John. They think they're going to crown him king. They didn't get a king. They got a savior. And we wonder where did they get this king idea. And why did they think Jesus was in charge and about to take over and rule. Well let me see if I can unpack that for you. The disciples, the original followers of Jesus got this conclusion Because that's exactly what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament was the Bible in that day. Are we all together on that? And the Bible they had read and memorized taught a very singular thing. The world's in a mess because of sin, just like the video showed. But now God is going to send His King. And when God sends His King, He's going to fix all of this mess and set everything right. And time would fail me to show you these scriptures in the Old Testament because it's the entire Old Testament. So let me just give you a couple of famous passages, Psalm 2 being one of them. Psalm 2 is fascinating. You're trying to figure out, is David talking about himself? Is David talking about Jesus? Who's David talking about? Here's what it says. I've installed my what? My king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The earth, the ends of the earth, the whole thing for your possession. Sounds to me like somebody's going to get it all. They're going to be large and in charge. And the psalmist said it's God's king who he has sent to the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, it's not a Savior's coming, a Savior's coming. It's a king is coming. A king is coming. Listen to Isaiah 44, verse 6. The prophet Isaiah said, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last, and apart from me, there is no God. Well, is he a God, is he a king, or is he a redeemer? Yes, praise God. He's all of those. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. And I'd like to challenge your thinking on this Sunday morning. Maybe it's us that are more confused and not the original disciples. Would anybody want to argue that you know more Old Testament than they knew? Maybe it's we who are a little more confused and not them. The disciples saw Jesus as a king. Today's Christians only see Jesus as a religious leader. You just bear witness in your heart to that statement for a moment. The early followers of Christ saw him as their king. Modern Christians, we only see Jesus as a religious leader. Today, Christians want a savior. They do not want a king. We want someone to forgive our sins. We do not want someone to tell us what to do. We want a Savior. However, we do not want a Lord over our lives. We want to sing to Jesus on Sunday, but we do not want King Jesus to tell us what we're supposed to do on Monday. Does that bear witness with your heart? Maybe it's we who are confused and not the early disciples. The original apostles, the original disciples, they did figure it all out. Just give them time. They figured it out after the resurrection. And three days later, they figured it all out and they said, okay, now we get it. He's both. He's both. Jesus is both Savior and Lord, King. He's both Savior and King, Savior and Lord. Yes, he's the Messiah King, but he's also the Savior. Okay, now we've got our heads screwed on straight. And, and, and so Peter stands up 50 days after uh, the, the resurrection, 50 at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Peter stands up a month later after he got it all worked out, and Peter begins to preach one of the most famous sermons in the Bible. And what in the world does he take for his text, that pesky old Psalm 2? where God's going to put a king on the throne and give him the whole world and make his enemies his footstool. But watch how Peter makes a fresh application based on his new understanding of Psalm 2. This is Acts 2, verse 34. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's got it now. You say, is he the Savior? Yep. He come to die for our sins. You got it. Did he come to be king? Yes. Is he in charge? Absolutely. Which is it? All of the above. Is he Jesus or is he God? Yes is the answer. And in John 14, when he said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit I will come to you, is his next statement. He called himself the Holy Spirit in the next verse. So is the Holy Spirit God, or is Jesus God, or is God God? Yes. yes. Now you're getting it. God manifesting himself in three ways. There is one God, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh is a one God, but if he comes in a body, which he did, he, he was called Jesus. We're going to study him for a few weeks. But after he left in bodily form, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm immediately going to turn around and send my spirit. I will be with you and I will be in you. I'm going to come in spirit form. I'm never going to leave you alone. You see, here's the truth. Jesus came to die for your sins and he came to be your king. You say, but they killed him. Yes, they killed him. And that's exactly how he won, because he rose the third day from the dead. It is through his suffering and death that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And it's through his resurrection that he is the king of the world. And he has ownership. And when Pilate nailed the decree over his head, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate got it right, but he didn't get it all. He's the king of the whole world. Not just the Jews. He's the king of me, and he's the king of you. And Jesus confronted their understanding about a kingdom being restored. Remember when he was on earth, he kept saying the kingdom of God is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. Why is the kingdom here? Because the king is here. He seemed to think he was in charge. He seemed to think he was the king, and he could tell them a new kingdom is beginning right now. Why? I'm here. We don't get it. The kingdom has come. What are you saying? I'm saying the kingdom of heaven is near to you right now. That's what the conversation looks like to me as I read the Gospels. He's just saying, "It's here. Are you the Messiah? Well, yes, I am, but don't tell anybody. Now isn't that strange? I'm going to heal you. Shh, don't tell anybody. And of course, they tell everybody. They tell everybody. Our Americans' perspective is very different. And here's why. Our ancestors threw off a a monarchy. You've all had American history, right? Everybody in this room has. Our perspective is different. She hasn't. Everybody else has. Our perspective is different. We threw off. We rejected. We rebelled against our monarchy. And we rejected our king because our king was oppressing us. And so the idea of having a king is antithetical to American thinking and to the American way of life. When I start talking king, Americans are like, we don't know what you're talking about. But every other people in history understood king. It's us who has a tainted perspective. If you say, do you want a king? We think oppression, evil, no way do we want a king. We don't want a Lord. We want a a representative republic. We want a bill of rights. We want a constitution. We don't want a sovereign over our lives telling us what to do. And we associate king with oppression, king with evil. But the lordship of Jesus is not a source of oppression for us. Quite the opposite is true. His lordship is actually the source of our comfort and and strength. And when you say, gosh, I don't want you to rule over me. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. If you would let him be the lord of your life, you would have a peace and a freedom and a joy and a liberty and strength. You would experience something you can't find outside of his lordship. He is God's king. He is the lord. And he doesn't reign like earthly kings and Earthly kings have given King Jesus a bad rap. How about that? He's not an oppressive king. In the ancient church, the confession of Jesus' lordship began to transform people. Let let me hasten quickly to, to my ending. The idea of Jesus' lordship began to transform people, and these transformed people began to multiply, and these transformed people multiplying eventually began to change the world. And today, those who are in the kingdom of God are still supposed to be changing the world. Those of you who are disciples of Jesus, just like the early disciples, we're supposed to be changing the world's values. We're supposed to be change agents for a God who is bringing his kingdom to this earth. We're supposed to be love. We're supposed to be light. We're supposed to overcome evil with good. We are supposed to represent Jesus here. Let me give you an example. For instance, those early Christians started to multiply and influence whole continents. And those Christians confessing Jesus as Lord now thought of slavery in a whole new light. Listen, slavery was just the way of the world for thousands of years. But now those who were being transformed by the Lordship of Jesus were beginning to think differently. Christianity was spreading rapidly rapidly in cultures that were, that were very pagan and very hierarchical. There, there, were, there were big barriers between men and women. There were big barriers between slaves and freemen, between Jews and Gentiles. But the Christian community did not agree with the norms of their culture. That people were to be defined by sex and race and nationalism and socioeconomic status. Followers of Christ did not agree that people should be defined by sex and race and how much money you had and what your ancestry was because these new followers of Christ had a Lord who was saying to them, you do as I'm telling you to do. You do as I did. And the new Lord is telling them to treat women as equals the way Jesus did. The the new Lord is asking his followers to treat all races with equality like Jesus did. The, The new king that's in charge is asking his followers to treat others with love and kindness like they saw him do. The original Christians saw Jesus as both Lord and Savior. Now I'm asking you to adopt that mentality this morning. I think for most of you, you've adopted him as your Lord. Uh, as your Savior, but maybe not as your Lord. You've asked Him to forgive you of your sins, but Him controlling your life and telling you what to do, you, you clearly are in charge and not Jesus Christ. And so you've said yes to salvation, but no to bending my knee to the King of kings and the Lord. But the confession says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And before you say the Apostles' Creed in a few minutes, you're going to have to settle the fact if he's your Lord or just your Savior. Do you want a free pass to heaven and forgiveness, or do you want everything that comes with being Jesus Christ's disciple? So let's get back. Now my time's just about done. Let's get back to the question at hand. One day, while splashing in the river and having fellowship, yeah, they're at Caesarea Philippi, Banya's, northern Israel. Jesus asked his disciples a couple of questions. Simple questions. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is his title for himself. Who do people say I am? Well, the disciples now are going to give the people's answer. They've got their ear to the public. And they know what the common people are saying. And what the rich people are saying. What the Jerusalemites and the Pharisees are saying. So the disciples begin to answer. Verse 14. There's three consensus answers and a possible fourth answer. Let's give them to Jesus. They replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And others say you're Jeremiah. Or... Maybe one of the prophets. Three answers, a possible fourth. Some say you're John the Baptist is what the people are thinking. Why would the people think Jesus is John the Baptist? Well, that popular opinion was put forward by none other than the ruler of Judea, Herod Agrippa. And Herod, who had been called out by John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, in Matthew chapter number 14... Herod had granted one of his exotic dancers, his favorite exotic dancer, a little private audience for a show, and he told his favorite exotic dancer, if you'll dance for me, whatever you want, I'll give you any request that you ask for up to half of my kingdom. And so she danced, and he granted her request, and her request at the end of the dance was, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. Nice young lady. You want to tell Herod, you probably better sleep with one eye open. Nice young lady. Then, just a little bit later, Jesus shows up preaching and doing miracles. So, you know what Herod, King Herod, thought? Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. He's come back to haunt me for what I did to him. Some people say you're Elijah. Why would people say Jesus is Elijah? Because on the last page of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi makes a prediction. Here's his prediction. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so Elijah, you remember, was this bold voice who spoke truth to power. This bold man who did miracles. And when Jesus showed up speaking truth to power and defying the Pharisees and defying the Sabbath, they said, well, Elijah has come back. Elijah is here again reincarnated. But he wasn't Elijah and he wasn't John the Baptist. Some people say, you're Jeremiah. Why would they say Jesus is Jeremiah? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah had such compassion for the people he took their hostility towards God very personally. In other words when the people wouldn't repent and they were hostile to God they went after idols. Jeremiah internalized that and the rejection of God he felt in deep inside his own person. And he cried and he cried and he wept over the people's sin. And now here is this Jesus of Nazareth publicly in the spotlight ministering and we see him weeping over the city of Jerusalem having compassion on the lepers and having compassion on the lame having compassion on the sick and the hurting and the disease and those demon-possessed, he, his heart goes out to the people and he loves the people. And we see Jesus hurting and crying because he feels so deeply the rejection of the people. And he knows what the consequences are to rejecting him. These were the answers of the people. But now Jesus makes his question very personal. Who do you say I am? Okay, let's take that off the table. We know who the people think, what the people think. Followers of Jesus, my own disciple, who do you? Now I know you're following me. But who do you think I am? Am I your Savior? I'm your Lord? Or am just a guy? I'm just another friend from that. Who do you say I am? Not surprisingly, it's Peter who speaks very quickly. Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that word Messiah has got a lot in it. It means king. It means Lord. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living Of the living God. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The king we've been looking for. You're the one. You're the king. You're the Lord. Let me ask you this question. Where did Peter get that information? Peter never gets anything right. He always responds wrong. And in a three or four verses he'll respond wrong again. But this is Peter's finest moment until Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And in Peter's great confession moment, where everything is clear to Peter, where did Peter get this wonderful answer? Verse 17 tells us, Jesus now says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Somebody else didn't tell you this. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. God revealed this to you, Peter. What a blessed moment for us when you figure out who Jesus really is. Because you will not have come to that conclusion because of my eloquence or a book you read. You will have come to that conclusion because Almighty God is doing a miracle in your heart this morning. If you've come to have some understanding of who Jesus is, This is not just about reading books and studying and being in church on Sunday. If you're beginning to comprehend who Jesus is, this is God doing a miracle work in your life. Is it also your opinion this morning that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Is God doing that same miracle in your heart this morning I know it's a miracle work of God. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit enlightening you and working in your life because all the evidence in the world cannot convince someone who's absolutely determined not to believe. They'll stay in unbelief. Paul's very clear on this in 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit's going to do a miracle in you and you're going to come to the belief that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. He's your King and He is your Savior. And the implications are very clear this morning. If He is Lord and He is your Savior, then we must worship Him. If He is Yahweh, if He is God, if He is Lord, if He is King, then somebody better be bending a knee. Somebody better be bowing a head. Somebody better be humbling a heart. Someone should worship and someone should confess and someone should receive him. Let me ask it a different way as I close. Do you believe in Jesus in such a way that he's not only the Savior but he's the Lord of your life. If we could get that at Cornerstone, we would have something very unique in modern history here. A view of Jesus that he didn't just come to save me, he did come to save me, but not only, he also came so that I could bend the knee, call him my Lord and King, and be a representative of his kingdom to this world. That's really where we're going. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.